Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, I'm Shane Hewitt filling in, and today on the Roy Green Show podcast, Justin Trudeau is incredibly cagey on the 5G Huawei issue. The federal government has announced $19 billion for provinces, but is it too much? Is it not enough? Can we make small exceptions on international travel for committed couples because the border is going to stay closed for another month? And anti-mask protesters, it's a thing, it's happening. Come on, man. Can't we just all make this easier? It's been hard enough in 2020. All of this and more coming on the Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to get started with uh, 5G, Huawei, Canada, and so much more that seems to be going on. Because this is a very tangled web that has been woven in regards to China, Canada, 5G, and so much more. Joining us to begin the program is Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, McDonald Laurier Institute. Good day, sir. Hi, how are you, Shane? I'm wonderful. Thanks for spending some time with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, so it's been uh, quite the waffle. In fact, let's hear uh, the waffle and a clip from Global News and Justin Trudeau. In regards uh, to uh, to the uh, the uh, um, issue around uh, uh, committees, as I said, we've received invitations. I've received an invitation to uh, attend committee. Uh, we are looking at that. I believe in openness and transparency. We've been uh, open and transparent with Canadians uh, as uh, as I take questions, as uh, I respond to questions in the House from parliamentarians, and as I said, we're still making determinations around what the uh, what further uh, openness we can show. Uh, we're not at that point yet of reflecting on that. You would think that um, <laughs> you think you'd be better prepared for a statement, Charles. But uh, what do you see that's going on here specifically with China, five G, and Huawei? Because it is an absolute bowl of spaghetti, isn't it? Well, you know, clearly we're not going to be getting the five G into our Bell and Telus networks for a lot of good reasons. Um, you know, the fact that all of our allies have determined that the five G uh, presents a threat to to infrastructure and um, and facilitates state-sponsored uh, data mining. Um, you know, is one reason that you know our allies won't share intelligence with us if if they think that we're using 5G, which is so amenable to um, relaying the information to the Chinese state. But the other is simply the Canadian reason we, you know, it's just not uh, uh, viable for us to have a security risk where the the Huawei company has such a close connection to the Chinese state, uh, state military and security agencies, and in fact, um, at the top of its organogram um, is its Chinese Communist Party branch, and its president is a member of the party, and all members of the Chinese Communist Party are required to assist the the intelligence agencies of this state to to the extent possible. So. You know, from that point of view, it's just a non-starter for us to to take the risk. Um, Huawei, being a Chinese state-associated company, can draw on all the resources of the state. So, you know, they're able to use the state's intelligence services to get information about um, technological advances of their competitors or bids for installation of of um, of telecommunication systems. On the one hand, and on the other, they're expected to facilitate 
the states, the Chinese states' desire to gather as much information about um, people in Canada and about our infrastructure to serve geostrategic interests. So, you know, from that point of view, it's a clearly a non-starter. But there are significant elements within Canada who, you know, are beholden to the Chinese state, um, who lobby our government hard. Uh, to not turn down Huawei 5G because their their Chinese state business partners say if you don't support our our government's interest in Canada, we will no longer allow you to be profitable in the Chinese market. So you know it is a it is a can of worms, but the the solution is pretty clear, and it's unfortunate that Canada has been the last comp- uh, country to have to make this determination because it does make us look weak in the eyes of our allies, particularly the United States. Well, and just, just to clarify the one statement you said earlier, is that, I mean, Canada still will get 5G. We just won't get Huawei's 5G. There are other providers out there like Ericsson and others. Um, so are we, is this really about the 5G in general, or are we just under the U.S. thumb here in regards to their agenda? Are we stuck because they're our neighbors and that's our biggest trading partner? Well, I think that certainly the United States has made it clear that if we install the Huawei 5G, that they will not be sharing um, intelligence with us in the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Consortium as before. And that, of course, would be disastrous for Canada's interests up in the Arctic and along the border because we are a net um, importer of intelligence. So, you know, we do rely on on these networks to maintain our, our security. So I think that that's certainly an aspect of it. But, you know, the United States doesn't actually supply 5G technology. As you say, the the main suppliers are um, Ericsson and uh, Nokia. And um, Ericsson is already uh, the company that supplies um, Rogers. And TELUS has been looking at uh, Nokia and Ericsson and Bell, too. The thing is that um, the, the Huawei equipment is uh, high-quality equipment available at a very low price. They been inclined to underbid their competitors by something in the order of 30%. So um, Bell and TELUS already have extensive installations of Huawei 3G and 4G technology. And so to switch away from Huawei to another provider, uh, like um, most likely Ericsson or Nokia, but there's also possibility of Samsung, um, will mean that, that they'll have to take out a lot of their existing Huawei kit, which will then damage their, their bottom line. So you know, there are strong financial incentives on the part of Bell and TELUS to to install the 5G. But, you know, you can't expect a telephone company or a Canadian corporation that has extensive dealings with Chinese communist business networks to take responsibility for security concerns. That's where the Canadian government has to set the, set the rules. And, you know, it's high time our government said to the Chinese government that this Huawei 5G thing that you're promoting is just not happening here in Canada. Charles Burton, thank you very much for the inputs. Very clear. I appreciate it. Good to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Uh, Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, incredibly poignant uh, point there about, I mean, business's job is to do business. And at 30% discount, why wouldn't you consider those things? I would imagine that there's got to be a certain point where if you're allowed to do it, then why wouldn't you, you know, do the best margins that you can? Personally, I subscribe in business to, you know, what's best. And it's not for me the access to the technology, but just imagine, imagine this. And I realize I am creating a scenario that at this point we hope doesn't exist. But imagine if something were to happen globally, some sort of conflict. And imagine if 
Huawei or the Chinese government had access to shut down a network. Even worse, you know, we saw with Twitter hack this week, imagine if the Chinese government had the ability to insert content into our network without us realizing it. That's the difference, right? We already have issues with filtering news, filtering content on social media platforms, either good or bad, not filtering enough, perhaps filtering too much. Websites that have incredible bias that pass off conspiracy theories as news. Political bias inside reports from certain broadcast networks, social media networks. And imagine if a government actor was able to insert information into our stream without us realizing it. And the Canadian government uh, does not make a decision. Uh, Will, can we play the first few seconds of that clip just one more time? Because the indecision in the answer, to me, speaks volumes. In regards uh, to uh, to the uh, the uh, um, issue around uh, uh, committees, <laughs> okay, as I said, that's good. I think that proves the point. My goodness, I just want to touch on that and just give you an update of what's going on inside uh, Canada 5G. Remember, canola, there was nothing, right? In and around oil and coal, there's been nothing. In and around the two Michaels, there's been nothing. I really hope there's something brewing in the background. I truly, truly do. The federal government announced $19 billion for the provinces as part of the package. The government has also offered to match new funding that the provinces and municipalities invest in public transit up to $1.8 billion. There's lots of places that many small municipalities do need help. There's no denying that. But is it the right move for the provinces? Mark D'Angelo joins us, president and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transport Association. Good day, sir. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for taking some time to share here. That's a lot of money, Marco. Is uh, is it badly needed when we talk about transport and infrastructure? Well, in terms of transit, um, you know, it's been the number one uh, missing piece of revenue uh, for many big cities, especially across the country. So uh, we were very happy that uh, the provinces and the federal government, uh, after we've been in lockdown for about four months and have been losing uh, $400 million a month in revenue, uh, through the fare box across Canada, we were very pleased uh, to see uh, both federal and provincial levels of government come together to keep moving people safely. Well, is now the time there seems to be less people on the buses? Well, it, even during the height of the lockdown, transit was still moving a million people a day. Many of those people are essential workers. So as economies will reopen, ridership is going to increase, but won't reach pre-pandemic levels, you know, as you say, for, for quite some time. But it is important to keep up that higher level of service so we can prevent uh, overcrowding in transit while providing uh, safe and reliable and uh, efficient ways to get around our cities. I um I understand the delay. Like there is a beautiful opportunity of delay here for if it takes if we're talking a year, a year and a half for you know some of this stuff to get caught up, the real life stuff. Um, there is a real opportunity to develop order by build in the course of that. And I live in Calgary, so of course the train line is part of that conversation. So there is a real window here of opportunity that is blended with uh, debt, available labor costs, and so much more. At the same time, though the Anecdotally, from what I've read, most transit systems are losing money like crazy, Marco. So, I mean, at that point, I realize the infrastructure is necessary for essential workers, no denying that. But 
I mean, they're losing money. It, it, it's true. I mean, money has been uh, lost by not collecting fares, and it's going to be that way for, you know, uh, I'm not sure how many months. It's very hard to, you know, to speculate even uh, four months into the, into the pandemic. Um, but the, the bottom line is that we've, we've got communities that, uh, that do have people uh, that do need to get to work or don't have cars and, uh, or don't want to own a car increasingly. And so these services need to be there. And, and your point about um, capital projects being really important as a, an economic stimulus of the, the, pan, uh, the post-pandemic recovery, um, you know, can count on essential public projects like uh, public transit. Because the last, the last thing you want to have happen over the next five years is a return to the single occupancy vehicle because they'll still have the same amount of roads and there'll be other congestion costs to uh to bear as well Mm -hmm. the part that i do like about this is the matching the 1.8 billion dollars is it enough uh i mean it's a it's an excellent start it's certainly going to keep our the lights on and and transit service running across the country so we're quite pleased uh, about that uh we hope uh, every province for the matching uh part uh, we'll step up and uh, do that, and we'll we'll work hard to make sure that uh, that includes all ten uh, provinces. So um, you know, all Canadians can uh, uh, aren't leaving any federal offering on the table for uh, transit, which is the lifeblood of uh, communities across the country. Yeah, programs like this always seem to benefit when there is a ma- matching uh, piece of the puzzle because it, it inspires local municipalities to find the pieces that they need and invest perhaps on things that have not been invested for a long time. Many people, Marco, are working from home now. And one thing about businesses, especially when you're paying a cost per foot in your business, there is an awful lot of reevaluation on what leases look like when they come up in the next three years, five years, seven years for some of these businesses. Working from home at least part-time, even when all of this recovers, has got to be a part of the plan for so many businesses, maybe shorter work weeks or... Uh, in the office, shorter work weeks, gathering for meetings, boardrooms, and so on. But the workspace is certainly changing. Is the old design the way to go inside transportation, or is it time for us to really look forward in transportation about what's possible? Uh, that's been one of the, um, the the big think pieces, I guess, over the last few months for transit. Uh, and we're still working our way through that is how in the long-term will travel demand behavior change. So it may be less focused on servicing uh, the core Monday to Friday in the morning and the afternoon. It may be more balanced through the day if people are staggering their working hours. Uh, We may need to look at point to point uh, between suburbs or or things uh, like that to have better connectivity uh, between people and jobs. We saw that that uh, it's really been in many cities, the suburban uh, bus rapid transit lines that have seen ridership continue during the pandemic and bounce back. And that's because that's where a lot of essential workers live, uh, you know, that, that are going to be uh, providing services that because not all work can be done from home, of course. Yeah, it's amazing what some of the workers have done. The drivers, for example, have been just heroes, in my opinion, for sitting in this and working through this. There's been an awful lot of change, for example. I don't know about you. I don't like people behind me. So as people in most scenarios are getting in the back doors of buses, I mean, that to me is would, would be a tough one for bus drivers. What do you say to all the bus drivers, train drivers that have worked so hard through all this? Because, I mean, I would like to extend them a big thank you. What do you say to those people? Oh, as would I to the the tens of thousands of uh, operators, people who work in maintenance, people who have volunteered 
uh, to do extra shifts for cleaning the people who have assisted um, seniors who, you know, it's easy for, it's easy that uh, it's hard for them, sorry, I should say, um, you know, to do some, um, to get around. And so there's been more volunteerism and from transit operators and paratransit and specialized transit to keep people uh, engaged in doing health check-ins. There's been a lot of things that, uh, um, transit professionals have been doing over the last uh, 17 weeks to to serve Canadians and to uh, come together as an industry. It's very proud of them and a, a big thank you to uh, to everyone. Yeah, the paratransit and the specialized, you know, for the older folks is a big one too because talk about being diligent. That's one where you just cannot afford to put your head down at night and wonder if you did enough uh, to keep that, that bus clean, if you will, through the day today when you're moving around the old folks. Thanks so much, Marco. Thank you very much. Marco D'Angelo is the president and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transport Association. Hi, Natalie, in London, Ontario. Natalie, what are your thoughts on the border? No worries. My thoughts are we should keep it closed for as as long as possible until USA has the virus under control. Yeah, you know, uh, you being in London, Ontario, uh, some of the, one of the things I like, because I'm broadcasting from Calgary today, one of the things that I, I like about London, or Ontario in general, uh, as I used to live there in St. Catharines, was that the, the opening up, the Phase 2, Phase 3, based on regions, not just blanketing the whole province. Ontario has worked incredibly hard to get caught up to some of the other provinces like BC, which opened up very deliberately, but they managed it differently. So how does it feel for you? Do you have family across the border, or are you just thinking specifically about the health of Canadians? Um, I actually have a daughter that lives in uh, in USA, in South Carolina. Um, she's a teacher. She's frightened to death to go back to work in, in, you know, probably another three weeks or so. Um, you know, um, I don't think the school should open, but, you know, it is USA, and uh, what can we do with, uh, with the leader that they have right now, you know, um, and people not being respectful of, uh, of, of this silent killer. Um, it scares me to death, so... Keep it closed for as long as it's possible. You know, you know, we seem to have it under control in Canada uh, for the most part. So let's keep it that way. All right. We Th- don't want any more, you know, <laughs> any more problems. Like there has been enough deaths already in Canada. I agree. Uh, Natalie, thank you very much. Natalie in London, Ontario. I appreciate you calling in. Our guest right now has a very vested interest in opening at least a little bit. Just a little crack in the door. Dr. David Edward Uipun calls us in now. He's co-founder of Advocacy for Family Reunification at the Canadian border. He is a doctor in Canada. And for clarity, David, your partner is not in Canada, correct? <laughs> That's correct. Uh, Alexandria is in Ireland. And it's uh, it's great to hear your voice again. It's been about a month or so since we talked last time, David. Uh, how are things going for you? Because it looks like you have a whole new petition to go to the House of Commons assembled, plus you have signatures and you've done your due diligence absolutely in regards to not opening the border per se, but allowing uh, committed couples or married couples access to uh, at least get into one side or the other. Is that correct? Um, so I'll uh, make sure to use the precise, precise terminology. And I'd like all listeners uh, listening right now to know that we are not asking for open borders. We are simply asking to be together. Currently, uh, the only people allowed 
for family reunification in Canada are married or common-law couples or dependent children of Canadians, as well as parents. So for the most part, that seems right, except you're missing two glaring groups. One are committed couples, such as fiancés, or people who cannot marry due to religious, personal, or LGBTQ plus reasons, Mm -hmm. as well as adult children of Canadians. So imagine that you have your mom uh, living uh, at home in Canada by herself, needs help, but you as a non-Canadian foreign national, cannot come in to help your parent. So these are two glaring omissions. The House of Commons petition you're saying, uh, we have just finished at 5,300 plus signatures. And all we are asking for is to expand the definition of current exemptions for immediate family to include these two glaringly missed groups, Mm -hmm. couples and adult children of Canadians. The adult children of Canadians is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. We didn't talk about that a month ago. Um, so let's let's break that down because the way that I understand the border today is that driving across the border is not an option. You cannot drive there. But if you did want to fly to the States in America right now, because you haven't been in Brazil or China or a small list of other countries, you can actually fly to the United States and you can actually fly from the United States into Canada with a mandatory two week isolation. So does that not address your concern? Well, uh, if we're talking solely about U.S. couples, and we're not referring to all Canadian borders, that includes, for example, my partner in Europe, where Mm -hmm. we have many other people. Secondly, uh, there are issues with the fact that one partner may be more mobile than the other. So your question, Shane, is if you can fly to the U.S., what's the problem? Well, what happens if you are an essential worker within Canada and your partner, I don't know, is doing homeschool or something like an online school, right. they, can fly, they cannot fly into Canada to reunite. Now let's make it more complex. Let's say that you have children to take care of uh, in Canada, and then your partner is in the, in the United States or another country, and then they cannot fly in. So these are the complexities and the nuances of why the precise language is necessary. And just to be clear for every listener right now, we are not asking for open borders. Yeah, and, you, and actually you can keep reinforcing that too because that's such a big part of the conversation. I just, I don't know if I understand, David, because right now, I mean, I can catch a flight from Atlanta to Calgary, no problem, and I just have to go into mandatory quarantine. So how, what am I missing? Uh, I believe, and I don't know you very well, Shane, but you're a Canadian citizen. You can fly from the United States to ah. uh, Canada easy. However, if you were an uh, American citizen or a Chinese national or a European citizen, right. you cannot fly in to see your partner, whoever that may be, in Calgary. Okay. So there's the clarity that we were looking for because that matters, Correct. right? I mean, for example, if you lived in Vancouver and you had a, uh, a girlfriend or fiancé or common-law mm-hmm. wife, committed uh, partner, that committed is partner. in Oregon... Uh, that would be um, that maybe you had a baby or maybe you were pregnant and whatever. Those two little humans, the little human plus your partner, would be American citizens. You being a Canadian, I mean, you could go there and come back with isolation in theory as long as you qualify under the the American travel rules. They can't come here because they're not Canadians. Do I understand that? Correct. Now, of course, now that we're dealing with birth, there is a birthright clause. However, I heard in your show earlier today, some people have not completed that paperwork. So we have specific cases like this where some of the adult children are not allowed to come in because even though the parent is Canadian, the children is not, the child is not. Right. In the baby's case you just said, dependent children would in fact be allowed in. Um, uh, however, the complexity comes in with the committed, not married, non-common law partner. 
Awesome. So because you're being clear on not opening the border, but just looking at uh, what these rules are to apply to these people, we're going to get into that next. I'm going to ask you to hang on. David Edward Uipun is our guest right now. He's a doctor in Canada, and they have an amazingly detailed uh, proposal in front of the government that they're trying to get into the House of Commons about partnerships and families. Let's go to uh, Diego in Scarborough. Hey, Diego. Hello. Hi, Diego. There you are. Good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We just have a quick second here. What's your thought? Thanks for taking my thoughts. Uh, I believe that the border should be closed. Mm-hmm. Just listening to your last caller, uh, pre-marriages and arrangements should not be included. The border should be closed. Yeah. Uh, I think that a lot of people are getting sick. Canada is doing pretty well. Uh, pre-arranged marriages and what the gentleman was talking about before, uh, I don't believe in that. Do you have kids, Diego? I do. So, um, so you don't believe that if, uh, say your, your, um, say one of your kids is an American now or lives in America, had a baby in America that you couldn't see your grandchild, um, or they couldn't come home to you if they needed help or needed to move here for the next six months. Is that my what I son, understand? Sorry. My son's in Florida right now. Oh, good They're example. They're going crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the, the, the trouble there. Mm-hmm. Sorry, my language. Um, no, I don't believe so. And I laughed at him over mm-hmm. the phone while they were golfing months ago right? with my two grandchildren, and no. Is I it hard for you as a dad and grandfather to have to say no to your own kids, to say, look, this is not safe for you to come here right now? Do you really want to know the truth? I do, I do. My father came, my father came here to marry my mother, both from Italy. I'm first-generation Canadian. Uh, they came with nothing, and I believe that I made a life for them. And it's okay to stay away for six months, a year, right? You know, it doesn't hurt. Yeah. As long as you're on the phone, uh, there's more technology than I've ever known. Right? You know, it's a lot easier to contact your family, right? It's true. Very good. Diego, thank you for the honesty, brother. I appreciate that. Thanks for taking the time. Opening the border for committed couples, um, you know, with the kids, there's the babies, there's there's people who are pregnant in committed relationships. Um, there are people who just can't get married due to law or religion or whatever. And so that is always the, the line, right? The line is, for me, is always the same thing, is that we use married in both uh, a faith dialogue and in a civil dialogue. And that's where this bowl of spaghetti always gets tangled up. And the minute, the only solution that we have in the broad scope of all of these scenarios is to stop calling it married in a civil partnership plus inside the faith partnership. That's the answer. It's just, it's clearly the case. It always happens in language for me. And that's got to be the solution. In the meantime, there's a bunch of humans that would like to see each other. So David, you've put together this over 5,000 signatures uh, proposal that's going in front of uh, House of Commons that you're working on here, the advocacy of the family reunification of the Canadian border group. That's a long title. Um, And it's a mouthful. So what does it look like? So you're saying we need to allow some people to come across in order to see their, uh, help out their parents or whatever. What does it look like uh, that you're proposing? Understood. So once again, to clarify to all callers, we are not asking for open borders. Um, we have both the petition, and this week I announced and released my personal family reunification quarantine plan. I developed this with Dr. Colin Furness, a Toronto epidemiologist, and this is made specifically for, like your previous caller, to abate the concerns of an increased number of people coming in for family reunification. We understand completely that COVID-19 is a monumental and unprecedented, terrible thing, and that is why we're going to do so safely. 
There are a number of different things that we'll do. Number one is a sworn affidavit. Uh, there's a precedent in places like Denmark where we will simply sign. We are signing. We promise our partner or our family member will definitely quarantine. This can be enforced by ticketing or by incarceration. We'll also ensure that they have insurance for COVID-19 covered issues uh, when they come, so therefore they will not be a burden to the Canadian healthcare system. We will also quarantine ourselves uh, anytime we meet a family member who's come in, and that quarantine will be the two-week minimum quarantine. All these things in combination are meant to uh, help abate the concerns and reassure the Canadian public that we are serious about our family. Now, one thing I would like to add, Shane, if that's okay, is I would like to ask people like your last caller and the government of Canada, does a marriage certificate decrease your chance of having COVID? Does being an NHL player decrease your chance of having COVID? And this week, we found out that NHL players are allowed not only to bring their married spouses, but their, quote, significant others into Canada, which means committed partner. So I ask you, I ask the government of Canada and I ask your last caller, does being the significant other of an NHL player make you have less chance of having COVID than the rest of us? We are not asking for open borders. We are just asking to be together. It's very thorough. Uh, you've made a lot of progress for the court through the course of the last uh, few weeks. Maybe you get a bit of a gift here as the border might start opening to other countries, just not the United States. Uh, that would certainly help here. But this designation clearly needs to be dealt with going forward anyway, because if there is a resurgence of this, you can't back off. If, say, come February, it needs to be dealt with again, the same problems will represent itself. David, it's been a pleasure to speak with you again. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very, very much. And I want to clarify, I speak as a private citizen, not for doctors, not for health authorities, and certainly not for public health. How is Alexandria? Is she okay? She's okay. It's been very difficult being apart. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are many other stories, much like that, with adult children and with committed couples. When was the last time you saw her? Um, I was actually in uh, Ireland when the pandemic was declared. Um, and so there were a number of inconsistencies that I was told by both the Canadian Border Services Agency, the uh, embassies to Canada in Europe, uh, as well as the airlines. We were actually at that time told that Alexandria would be able to come in. Uh, however, that was certainly not the case. And that is why we were advocating today. Thank you for your time, sir. It's nice to hear you. Thank you, Shane. Dr. David Edward Uipun, a doctor in Canada. His partner, Alexandria, is in Ireland. And the advocacy for family reunification at the Canadian border group. They've been so thorough. Let's go My to goodness. Lee in Calgary. Hey, Lee. Thank you very much. Hi. Uh, interesting, while I was on hold listening to your last two callers and the fellow whose uh, favorite person in the world is in Ireland, I'm neither here nor there whether or not they open up the border, but I was not happy to hear about the special rules about the NHL players getting to come across the border when others aren't. Yeah, it seems offside. Yep. Excuse the pun. It, yeah, it really did. And, um, you know, the whole pandemic issue, again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not buying everything. Not buying everything about this, and you know, if you're in a committed relationship with somebody from another country, how committed are you if you haven't changed your citizenship? Well, if some to, people it, it costs a lot of money. Um, thank you, Lee, for the call. They cost a lot of money in some cases. There are things like jobs and family and, and moving. And and I think you're right, Lee. Is that I don't I wouldn't I'm not going to judge people and say how committed are you. Uh, that's for sure, because sometimes life and kids get in the way. People, two uh, divorced parents could meet with babies 
jobs and careers on other ends of the border and not be able to instantly make life happen. But that being said, Lee, uh, I will consider that uh, it is possible that some of the complacency of the there's no deadline from the past has most certainly inspired people to get some of the paperwork moving and started. Uh, work visas, are, they don't just hand them out, by the way. In Canada now, this weekend, I it's been hard to follow and get a list because it's been changing so quickly. In Toronto, I believe today, Hamilton, Vancouver, and others tomorrow, anti-mask protests. It's not what they're calling them, though, but they are scheduled to happen. For example, we did just find out that there's one coming up in Hamilton uh, tomorrow at 1. And I don't, I truly don't get it. I don't. Jason Kendrachuk is uh, emerging virus. Uh, I'm going to call you the king now, Jason. <laughs> We've become friends through COVID because we speak so often now, uh, which is kind of nice. I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Jason. Uh, likewise, Shane. I always appreciate you having me on, man. So uh, they're calling this the Hamilton Celebration of Life and ah. Education Gathering. So these are people that are uh, protesting. For the most part, you see that's hugs over masks is what they're called. And some of the, the different photos that end up at their events are around, you know, no vaccines, no masks, these things over and over again. Now, the piece of this puzzle that is not in there, it doesn't say anything about what the education gathering is going to really be about. So what, um, what can we dispel about masks in general, if anyone has any questions, let's take it from a place, Jason, of no judgment. Uh, that's going to be hard for me, but you're a doctor, so that's probably <laughs> easier for you. Um, I'm just a judgy human. So let's take it from a place of zero, and let's say, okay, so if somebody is on the fence and they're just unsure, does a mask help, and who does it help? Let's start there. Yeah, I mean, it's so tough right now, right? I'm, I, I'm biting my lip as I'm going through this, trying to be balanced. Uh, and, and hold back my frustration. But if, so if we take a step back and, and you were to say to me, okay, what, what would you say from a public messaging side to, you know, to try and kind of dissuade people's fears or concerns about masks? Ultimately, what, what we understand about masks, and, and this is present in, in every hospital and every clinic that we go into, um, obviously we, people use masks so that if they potentially are carrying a bug, um, that they don't pass that on to somebody that might be in a position where they're very vulnerable. So again, hospitals are a perfect setting where we see during surgery, uh, as well as in uh, the emergency room, many physicians you know, from time memorial on have used masks to stop transmission of anything that they're potentially carrying uh, onto their patients. So the, the extension with this is now trying to understand, does, you know, in, in the age of COVID, does the mask actually provide us with any protection from becoming infected? And that's a little bit, I don't want to say it's, it's gray area, but I think it's, we're getting a little bit more information on it now. Um, in the days of the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, um, you know, there, there was quite a, a laundry list of papers that had come out suggesting that people that were sick, if they used a mask, that it helped reduce transmission. But we didn't quite have a, a good I think, indication of what happened the opposite way around. COVID now, I mean, when you look at just the different communities, that have used masks as opposed to those that haven't. And if you look at this just on looking at correlations between transmission events and masking, I, unequivocally, there's, there's strong correlative evidence to say that masks help. And I think we're at a point right now where 
when we look at how this virus is transmitted, the, the mask is not going to prevent 100% transmission from occurring. It's not going to prevent 100% of the virus from being uh, expelled from somebody and escaping through that mask, but it's going to provide some amount of protection. And ultimately, what we're looking at is this idea of saying that some is better than none. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, I think some of the message has been lost. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of pushback on, again, the idea of, you know, why from January on did we not see recommendations on masks? Well, we've seen this virus for six and a half months. So, you know, in that time frame, the science has changed and, and, and our understanding of the situation has changed. We can look back at HIV and, the, you know, the initial few months at HIV you know, kind of started to spread through North America compared to what we understand now or what we've been understood after 12 months. Um, we always are, are a bit behind the eight ball with trying to catch up. And, and that's the situation we're in. The guidance is changing to adapt to, to how, you know, we're better understanding what's going on with this virus. Um, but man, we, 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 need, we need the communities to, to help us with this and, and help kind of buy into the idea that we're not doing these or making these recommendations to try and hinder people's rights and privileges. We are doing this to try and stop a pandemic. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's the difference uh, that we often get lost in the truth. People tell us the truth about masks and the way that the way that the language works that we really need to understand is that the truth is just your perspective, right? As best you understand it. That's your truth. The truth is, is that I'm sitting in a padded room in Calgary right now talking to myself. You're at home on your phone in Winnipeg, you know, talking to yourself. And this is my truth, right? There's no denying my truth. And some people, that's your truth. That's great. You're allowed that perspective. But the part of the, the piece of the puzzle that we always lose here is that there are also facts and the truth does not always reflect the facts. And facts over the course of time change. For example, at one point the world was flat, then it was round, and to some people it's now flat again. So those facts change over time. But there's one magical place where we can all land, and that's accurate. Because when we can land in accurate, then we can look at the perspective and say, I shared with you as accurately as I could as best I knew. And mm-hmm. that's where we need to land in this, because accurately as best we know just is uh, just a fact of life because life keeps changing. One hundred percent, right? And, and this situation is going to continue to to adapt and evolve. And listen, what what we understand today, in two weeks from now, and two months from now, it is going to be completely different um, as far as our understanding of how um, you know, say things like long term impacts of of the virus. We we are trying to catch up as quickly as we can with you know millions of cases that that are being reported, and and we can't. Uh, you know, understandably do that in real time. So, you know, we're, there, there are going to be changes that we're going to see, but what we've really seen has been, um, you know, some of the, the anti-vax community has definitely latched onto this. Um, that, that has made it difficult because they, they have a very coordinated, um, you know, uh, uh, number of proponents that, uh, that are providing information on, on social media. And they're, they're very organized and they're very good at, at what they do and kind of, you know, gently tweaking the message to 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 meet you know like you said their truth yeah the narrative um, well if, any, if they've recruited anybody they've used this as an opportunity to recruit at 100 percent absolutely 100 percent Shane and that's and that's the difficulty for us is that we're we're now kind of battling two fronts um, because we've already seen the the pushback on uh, on COVID 19 vaccines and and the idea of uh, you know basically pushing this narrative of a lot of people saying they will not get the COVID 19 vaccine mm. um, we're, we we don't have a vaccine that's licensed yet. 
Um, so to already see that narrative being pushed forward, like we, th- this is where we are, and this is why ultimately this pandemic is going to continue on um, for, for months on end because we, we are going to have the, you know, this segment of the, of the population that, that will absolutely do everything that they can to, to essentially allow the virus to roam free, and, and we can't be in that, that reality right now. Dr. Jason Kendrachuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, University of Manitoba. It's nice to hear your voice, Jay. Shane, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Uh, So here's a couple things to consider. Even best case scenario, if there is a vaccine on January 1st, it's going to take time to roll out. The Canadian government is already, uh, it was in the news, or they're ready to inoculate. They're getting ready to inoculate when that time comes. Great job. High five. Well done. So, but if we look at a place like America, America doesn't have, they've proven to not have the same medical structure to deal with all of these things. They don't. So the belief that even in America, they're going to be able to roll out to those willing to take a vaccine quickly and easily, it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time, in fact. So even best case scenario, even if there is a vaccine on the first, we're still looking at months and months and months before everybody's able to get it and before it's everyone's going to be able to get access to it. It's a remarkable notion because we often think, well, it'll be done by Christmas. That'd be great. Let's get, let's get ourselves, let's get ourselves a, you know, a vaccine. And that doesn't include the people that are against vaccines. And if you're against vaccines, I don't get it, but good for you, whatever. Just let's make sure that we are being as accurate as we can. And the reasons why, because you are, you are entitled to your truth. It's true. But just because it's your truth doesn't mean it's factual and does not mean it's accurate. We've all been through things in life. But it's when we share things online or we share things to our friends that are not factual and accurate as best we understand it, that we get ourselves into an incredible pickle. And I just invite you this, right? I'm on my own soapbox of belief here. I get that because my belief system says this, and you don't have to agree with it, but I'm going to invite you to consider it if you are against masks. If you're considering going to an anti-mask rally, which hill are you willing to die on? Because even if you're a conspiracy theorist, even if you believe that all of this is fake, even if you believe that all of this is just a ruse, are you sure that that's the side you want to be wrong on? Because we can think about how we're right all day. But it's, what if I'm not right? Because if I'm going to be wrong, I have no problem looking back at my photos from 2020 on my iPhone and saying, boy, that was dumb wearing a mask all the time. You know where I'm not okay being wrong? Is if this gets worse and someone close to me dies or someone close to you dies because they got sick. Or if I have to put my head down at night knowing that I walked into my parents' place who are both immune compromised and causing some sort of illness. Just because I wouldn't want vanity of a mask? Don't get me wrong, it's a great reminder that you didn't brush your teeth today. It's a mask. I guess I just don't get it why it's such a big deal. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.